Legacy formation and the Big Bang model are two separate ideas. You could have a Big Bang and you could not form galaxies at all. Cosmology talks about like the Big Bang, inflation, formation of matter, possibly, you know, what makes dark matter including dark matter structures. And then galaxy evolution talks about how the regular matter that we see with our eyes turns into stars, into galaxies, and eventually becomes the Milky Way. Um, and those things don't necessarily predict each other. There is no, there's no big astronomy. I don't have a vested interest <laughs> in the Big Bang being correct. I go with what the data shows me and what evidence shows me. And so if things are wrong, they're wrong. And that's, and that's awesome. Welcome, dear listeners, to this episode of Into the Impossible. There are over 100 billion stars in our own Milky Way galaxy. Some astronomers estimate there are over 2 trillion galaxies in the observable universe. How did these mind-bendingly enormous structures get there? Has it really been only 13.8 billion years since the Big Bang? How do esteemed cosmologists like your host Brian Keating know the age of the universe? And why are Joe Rogan and Elon Musk tweeting about it? Has new data from the James Webb Space Telescope disrupted accepted cosmology? Are Professor Keating and his guest, Professor Allison Kirkpatrick, part of a conspiracy to hide the truth? In this episode, you're going to get a masterclass on how science is done as Brian and Allison respond to Rajendra Gupta's controversial paper challenging the current model of the universe. If you love science and open dialogues about the nature of the universe, Please keep Into the Impossible in your feeds by subscribing and following. Pay it forward with a share to like-minded friends. Take a moment to let us know what you think in the form of a review. To see the video version of this interview, jump over to our YouTube channel at Dr. Brian Keating, that's Dr. Brian Keating, and subscribe there too. There, you can find many more episodes about the James Webb Space Telescope, cosmology, and how the age of the universe has been measured. And now, why the universe is not 27 billion years old with Brian Keating and Allison Kirkpatrick. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Open the pod bay doors, please. Hello out there. Today is a very special day on the Into the Impossible podcast. I am joined by a renowned professor, a colleague, a friend who I'm only meeting today for the very first time, Dr. Allison Kirkpatrick. How are you doing today, my friend? I am great. And timing was perfect. I was writing a grant and there's nothing I want to do less than that. <laughs> uh, except maybe respond to referee reports. We'll talk about that as well. So, uh, so today we're going to be talking about really incredibly provocative claims as part of what I call the academic media hype complex, where something will get maybe good, good research done on an important topic. And then what will happen is the press office at the institution where the individual works, if they have such a thing, they will uh, they will come out and promote it, say, because they want to get attention for their researchers. It's, it's a natural thing, and it's fine to do that. Uh, but then sometimes it gets out of control, and in particular that happens with claims that revolutionize, threaten to revolutionize their understanding of the universe or a place within it. 
etc. So today uh, I am going to talk with my friend and colleague Allison, who is an expert in galactic physics and dynamics, astrophysics. I am not. I have no knowledge whatsoever about galactic processes, other than I can identify where the Milky Way galaxy is. Uh, but uh, but besides that, it is uh, her purview. But we are going to talk about results claimed from a researcher in Ottawa, Canada, uh, Rajesh Gupta, I believe is how you pronounce his name. And, um, and I will take the opportunity to have Allison here to describe what the gal galactic physics is. And I will talk about the cosmological implications. But before we start, I want to uh, first show this image that I saw uh, from Twitter, which is the repository of all scientific knowledge, right? Uh, so on Twitter, just this past uh, weekend on Sunday, there was a, a tweet storm by Joe Rogan, um, who uh, tentatively uh, is, is going to host me at some point relatively soon. We'll see uh, more information as that uh, develops. But uh, Joe Rogan, of course, is the Oprah of our generation. He has uh, revolutionized our, our media and communications, and he's very fascinated with science and technology. And just last week, he had on a friend of mine, uh, whose name is uh, Dr. Stephen C. Meyer, uh, who has been a past guest on the podcast as well. And he mentioned uh, you, Allison. Stephen C. Meyer did. He didn't mention you by name. He mentioned me by name. So you've been on Joe Rogan by your work, and I've been on Joe Rogan by name a couple times, and hopefully this will be coming um, to fruition in the near future. And maybe we'll, you know, I'll convince Joe to have you on as my sidekick, or I'll be your sidekick, or whatever. But Joe's very interested in these claims that the universe is, uh, is either far older than we see, or we don't understand what the universe is made of, or we don't understand how the universe is evolving. And these are incredibly provocative claims. They've gotten so much attention. So you see on the screen now, if you're watching on YouTube, I'm showing uh, Joe Rogan's tweet, which says simply, new research puts age of the universe at 26.7 billion years, nearly twice as old as previously believed. It's a link to a fizz.org website. And then right below it is a tweet from Elon Musk. Now, uh, I have tweeted back to both Elon and to Joe uh, to no avail, but uh, we, will, we will see. Maybe they're joining. Uh, hopefully, I'm streaming this on Twitter. We'll, we'll see about that. You can follow me on Twitter at Dr. Brian Keating and follow Professor Allison Karpachik at, at AK Astronomy on Twitter as well. Um, and so what, what I wanted to do is sort of take through beyond the tweet. I want to go beyond the tweet. And that is, uh, that is to say we should always be respectful of new ideas that can challenge our complete understanding of the nature of our fields. And we should be open to it because a lot of times, Allison, I get this complaint. You physicists don't know what you're talking about. Dark matter, dark energy you know, whatever, uh, you don't know what you're always adding on little, little, um, you know, epicycles, how, how is this any different? And then you guys are threatened because you're part of big astronomy. So first of all, I want you to take us back to last summer when I first met you. And that was thanks to a barrage of, of media coverage over a similar claim, an allied claim, as we will get into by Mr. Eric Lerner. And I should say that this paper that we're talking about today is of a different caliber and a different sort than that of Mr. Lerner, um, who I've you know interacted with back and forth on various YouTube channels, but never in person. And I, I should say, I didn't invite Dr. Gupta on this call, 
but we uh, we uh, he's welcome to come on the podcast and we can talk to him at any other time. Uh, I've also had conversations about recent high temperature superconductivity claims uh, that I invited the uh, the authors of that claim on. They declined. They didn't respond. So I love to have these conversations, although I don't think debate is how astronomy gets done. Allison, take us back July, August of last year. You were part of a maelstrom of undeserved attention, negative attention perhaps, and it was all because of Mr. Eric Lerner. So take us through what happened back at that time. Yeah, sure. And actually, you know what? Um, I'll agree with you. The paper that we're going to discuss today, um, I, I have some problems with, but it is a legitimate paper. Um, and it's got, uh, it's got a lot in it that, um, that is well thought out. Uh, but okay. So, so last summer I'm on one of the teams that's getting some of the first data from the James Webb Space Telescope or JWST. And, um, and the things that we find are really surprising. And the things that we find are what, what motivates this paper today. Uh, we're seeing galaxies in the very, very early universe. Um, that appeared to be pretty massive and it was, it was surprising and it's really exciting. Um, I, I love it. Every time we get a surprising result, it's great. And I got interviewed for a nature piece and I said, um, that right now I find myself lying awake at three in the morning, wondering if everything I've ever done is wrong. <laughs> Um, which is true. I did. We were, we were rethinking everything, but not the big bang, not like our understanding of the universe. We were rethinking the parts that we don't understand so well, which is how galaxies form and evolve. That's, uh, that's an area of, of just really rich ongoing scientific discovery. Um, so, so that's what I meant. And Eric Lerner, uh, does not think that the Big Bang happened. Um, and and for those of you out there, um, I guess the competing model, there's two, I don't really want to say competing because um, the other model doesn't have as much scientific le uh, legitimacy, but historically there have been two competing models. There is the Big Bang, which basically means the universe had a start so the universe had a start and it is changing in time. So when you hear the Big Bang, that's what you should think of. Um, I don't know, uh, Brian, if you've ever talked about this on, on your channel before, but the term Big Bang uh, was actually started as a derogatory term. Yeah. And, you know, and nowadays people are like, there was just an explosion? No, no. Just the universe had a start and it's evolving and it's changing. Um, and then there's the steady state model, which says that the universe didn't have a start and it's not changing. Uh, and so Eric Lerner is a proponent, proponent of the steady state model um, and uh, presented some very spurious evidence. Um, Brian has a great video on this that I watched last year. If you haven't seen it, go back and find it. It's awesome. Um, very spurious evidence that, uh, that disproved the Big Bang. Uh, it did not. JOST hasn't done that, and it's not even capable of doing that. That is not what it's looking at. Uh, it is looking at how galaxies form. Uh, and and he used my quote, and he uh, used my quote um, and used it to imply that I thought that the Big Bang didn't happen, which isn't true. I definitely believe the universe had a start, and it's been expanding and changing ever since. Um, 
And yeah, since then, I guess I've become one of the leading cosmologist theorists in uh, in astronomy, which is not the science that I do at all. Congratulations. Um, <laughs> um, but I get We'd love to have you. We'd love to convert you, you know. <laughs> I get asked for my opinion on this stuff um, a lot. I get to I get to talk to journalists a lot. The most bizarre experience um, I got to be live on the air on Canadian on a Canadian radio morning show, um, talking talking about this. So it's been pretty fun. Uh, but JWST has not disproved the dis Big Bang, and it cannot disprove the Big Bang. That's that's not what it's that's not what it's doing. That's right. Yeah, and I guess I uh, let me let me you know, pull out this analogy on you and you can smack me down as you see fit. But but it's as if, you know, we saw life on Earth that emerged. There's a so-called great oxidation event. Then there's this Cambrian explosion. And imagine if someone were to observe these paleontological formations and from them say, no, 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 there's too much rich structure in the archaeological record for a 4.32 billion year old Earth. So in fact, uh, not only is the, the Earth never formed, it was uh, it's been existing for all time. Uh, in order to make it compatible uh, with the our models of of evolutionary um, uh, uh, bi biology, so what, what do you think about that analogy? Because essentially, what they're looking at, they're looking at sizes, shapes, applying a hundred year old test called the Tolman test that we'll get into, which Tolman himself used as a proof that the Big Bang was correct. Um, so, what do you make of those? So I think that's a great analogy. Um, I think we're able to do a little bit better on the earth than we are in space uh, because we at least understand um, some things about how the earth was different in the past. And I think if we saw a whole bunch of fossils, we would just refine our theory of how past animals formed. Um, the problem, so, so looking, doing galaxy evolution is very similar to looking at the fossil record. We cannot watch things change in time. No grad student lives that long, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> I've kept mine around a long time, you know. <laughs> um, and, and so all we get are snapshots of what galaxies looked like in the past and what the universe looked like in the past. And we try to figure it out from there, um, very much like looking at the fossil record on Earth. Um, the issue is, and we'll, we can get into this more because this is my issue with the paper that I want to talk about today. Um, conditions in the early universe might have been very different. Yes. And unfortunately, we really can't measure those. And so everything that we're basing our understanding of early galaxies on is based on what we see around us today in our own Milky Way and our own galaxies. And, and we know, like, we know that some of that is false, um, but we don't have good models for, for how it's false or how to correct mm -hmm. for it. Yes. Yes. And so, you know, there's a difference between the Big Bang model, the components that go into the Big Bang model, uh, cosmology itself, the Big Bang itself, and conflating these many different disparate pieces of data, evidence, models, hypotheses is very dangerous. And it's the mark of kind of a sloppy, um, you know, ham-handed or, or very fast-paced attempt to um, potentially make a headline or potentially to stake a claim. 
And uh, and I think that, well, as much as I like to rail on my fellow colleagues, uh, in this case, I think it might have been the you know the media office. So let me let me take you through the the chain of events as I under, understood it. Um, and so let me turn down. People usually complain about my volume being too loud, so I'm going to turn it down or too soft. But now I so I cranked it up with my special booster software. Um, hopefully, yeah, I'm conflicting feelings up the media office. I mean, so for one thing, I think it's it's great that like you have this podcast and I love talking to the media because I think it's so important to disseminate science to people. I mean, JWST is the people's telescope. It was built with taxpayer dollars, so we should exactly. be talking to them. Um, on the other hand, the media have a very different job than we have and they want to make our science exciting. And so that can make things a little bit more clickbaity than perhaps we're we're comfortable with. That's right. And then, you know, I think you have to have, you know, apply Newton's law, right? It, for every, you know, clickbait, there's an equal and opposite clickbait. So you could say, well, here's a piece of evidence potentially against the interpretation of the age of the universe within the context of the Big Bang model. And then here's mm -hmm. 50,000 other, you know, pieces of information supporting the Big Bang model. And that's why I want to go through the paper, because I think think it is uh, it is taking on some interesting uh, some interesting challenges and it's not to say that the Big Bang model is right and I always love to quote Isaac Asimov Isaac Asimov said if you believe the earth is flat you're wrong if you believe the earth is a perfect sphere you're also wrong but you're less sure. wrong in other words our yeah. job as physicists as astronomers as professors is to look for the flaws we don't we don't just sit around confirming 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 things. No, no no we look for the variations the unexpected surprises and deviations from what our current model is and then we refine it and and it's called the scientific method and i think it's a very powerful thing but there is no one scientific method so it can confuse people by saying if you believe the big bang is not wrong then you believe it's perfect. And that's a very dangerous syllogism to draw. So let's let's go through the paper. Oh, sorry. Let me start with the press release because this is where it all began, at least for me, when I saw this. I started off um, looking at it and was a little bit uh, a little bit uh, consternated, if that's a word. So here's the, uh, the press release from U Ottawa, University of Ottawa, um, which I believe is in the 51st state known as Canada. Just kidding out there, my Canadian friends. Just kidding. So it's called reinventing cosmology. That's pretty bold, right? U Ottawa research puts the age of the universe at 26.7, not 13.7 billion years. And of course, there's this beautiful picture, you know, which is, and there's a bunch of quotes. What I love about it is that there's now a new term for something called the impossible early galaxy problem. I love that, like impossible. As That's great. part of the name of this podcast, right? Into the Impossible, the name of my second book, Into the Impossible. Um, nothing is impossible. In fact, Arthur C. Clarke said the only way to go, be, uh, the only way to discover the limits of the possible is to go beyond them into the impossible. So we'll be talking about that. Uh, but in, in reality, this this paper starts off by by looking at um, by looking at this quote, and the quote says, "Newly devised model puts galaxy formation time by several billion years." Well, wait a second that that just shifted the the play fields, right? Um, uh oh, are you still there? Continue without. I'm here. 
Okay. I can That's hear you. weird. It just said that it's not got me on there. Okay. Oh, I think it just kicked off Twitter. All right. Whatever. That's no big deal. Uh, Elon, you had your chance to join. Um, so our newly device stretches galaxy formation time. So what is what is the difference here? What are they trying to do? They're trying to say that galaxies are seem to be too highly developed, too structured to be consistent with the Big Bang taking place at a certain period of time. And I and I think that is a fundamental flaw to then say because of that, the model known as a, the the Big Bang cosmology or Lambda CDM, et cetera, is wrong. So what do you make right. of this conflation? And, and then we'll get into the details of what they, uh, Professor Gupta or uh, Dr. Gupta is claiming. What do you make of this? When you combine a flaw, and then you say the underlying arc superstructure is, itself is wrong because there are things that are inconsistent with the model itself. Go ahead. Right. So galaxy formation and the Big Bang model are two separate ideas. Um, so, you know, just for everyone out there, we have galaxies because we happen to have um, a matter antimatter asymmetry in our universe. And so we happened to be left with enough matter to form gas and to form stars. You could have a big bang and you could not form galaxies at all. You could in fact have an expanding universe that has no matter in it. Like they're, they're two separate ideas. Um, because of specific things in our universe, uh, we we get galaxies um, from the fact that the that um, various things happened very on, very early on in the universe itself. Um, but it it's really I don't know it's really odd to me to keep seeing people conflate these two ideas because cosmology is not the same as how galaxies evolve. Cosmology talks about like the Big Bang, inflation, formation of matter, possibly, you know, what makes dark matter and getting dark matter structures. And then galaxy evolution talks about how the regular matter that we see with our eyes turns into stars, into galaxies, and eventually becomes the Milky Way. Um, and those things don't necessarily predict each other. That's right. And when we look at the uh, back to this paper or back to the press release, let me let me just keep reading from it. Um, the, the question that keeps coming to my mind is why is this being like picked up? Why? Why is there seeming to be a, almost a desperation to have the Big Bang model, which has a, a, a very aged universe as it is, have it be overthrown? What do you, what do you make of those kind of in a sociological sense? And then we'll turn to the actual paper itself, which is behind a paywall, but I've I've penetrated the paywall and I can give tips on how you can do the same uh, out there. But let's uh, let me ask you, what what is this fascination, obsession, et cetera, going back 30 years in the case of Eric Lerner uh, promulgating the same types of 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 uh, proposed or supposed tests? And why is there so many why are there so many people out there who really adhere to this and want to believe it's true? Is it like, you know, believing in aliens exist or is it something deeper? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think on the one hand, science is exciting and people and people love science. And so when we learn big results, that just makes people really excited. So I think I think on the on the most basic level, um, you have people who genuinely love science, um, maybe don't have um, a highly um, educated. I, I hate to say highly educated. Um, but have just like gone on and have a bachelor's degree in science or have a, an advanced degree in science. Maybe they don't have that. So they don't really have 
all the tools. And so they're just, they're relying on us to disseminate our results. Um, but they love science and they want to learn about it. And so when the media disseminates results in a way that's easier for them to understand, but as we said, maybe kind of clickbaity, they really like that. Um, but it comes from a genuine place. On the other hand, I think that you get into the less genuine place, um, which is, um, and I'm going to relate this to like anti-vaxxing and things like that and the flat earth. Um, I, I think there's people who like conspiracy theories, like we didn't land on the moon and things like that because, um, because there's a distrust of the government, which may be deserved. I mean, come on, the government yeah. doesn't tell us everything. I'm yeah. going to, you know, um, and so, and so there's this distrust of the government and then scientists start getting lumped in with that. Um, and they start seeing us as, um, I guess, proxies of the government. And so therefore we can't trust scientists. And therefore I found out the secret thing that makes like everything make sense. Um, and so I think it's, I think it's an anti-disestablishment, um, <laughs> as as well and and that really like that breaks my heart because the amount that the government is influencing my science is exactly zero like even right. though i take from the government um they're not like rubber stamping everything i put out i can put out whatever i want right there's, uh, there's no tribunal where you know people are <laughs> are are suggesting that you know unless we toe the line of of big astronomy that we will right. lose our funding lose our students etc in fact the way to get you know, the most attention would be to kind of follow along these narratives and see where they lead. That's why I say uh, in terms of uh, extraterrestrial intelligence, uh, you know, mm -hmm. physicists are the most interested and most impressed, you know, that this is important to study because if so, it short circuits, you know, tenure uh, to zero, you know, seconds, but also because it short seconds are understanding the physics of the 29th century potentially. And physicists are more nerdy and, and they're even than the most diehard UFO you know, kind of uh, believers, so to speak. So, so here's Professor Gupta and his quote. As I said, um, now things start to get interesting because, um, unlike Lerner, this is a this is an esteemed professor. This is this is a, uh, someone who has a PhD. On, and I'm not saying you can't make contributions without a PhD. Freeman Dyson, my very first guest on this podcast, Allison, you may not know, was uh, he's known as the rebel without a PhD. Uh, he did not have a PhD, but he got, went on to some success, right? <laughs> uh, so don't worry about, you know, our, Professor Lerner, uh, Dr. Lerner, uh, not Dr. Lerner, Mr. Lerner. But this is this is a serious person who has many papers, uh, many of which are published in the same journal and uh, uh, a little bit questionable, you know, why this, how this went through so straight to publication and the, and the co-time press release effectively and what's a model, right, Allison? This is somebody who's got a model. He's using the model, adjusting the model, as he admits, to fit the data in two different ways. One, he's invoking a very old explanation for the large extent of the observable universe called tired light to explain redshifts, um, which has been going on, like I said, for probably 50, 60 years. Uh, and secondly, he's invoking another modification, not just to the astronomical observation of data and its interpretation, but to the laws of physics, because he's proposing, and it's mandatory this happens in the best fitting of his models, which is a combination of tired light and what's called changing cosmological constants or changing uh, constants of nature. So in other words, you think of a constant, you think of something that's never changing. He's introducing variable constants. 
And to do so, he applies a bit of what I claim is authority bias. He cites Dirac. And it is true, Dirac did investigate some of these notions for various reasons to explain what are called numerological problems in physics. Why is the fine structure constant so small? Um, right. Dirac and many other people wanted to come up with the fine structure constant being the reciprocal of an exact reciprocal of an integer, namely that it was 137 when you divided uh, one by the cosmological by the fine structure constant. And so he adapted and adjusts that. In this paper, ad hoc as it may be, uh, Dr. Gupta inserts in a changing constant, and these changing constants are all over the place, and they're mandatory for this. What did you? How did you react when you saw that? I'm going to blow up the paper, and you uh, walk us through what that implication is, or what what you made of it when you first encountered. It. I found it raised a huge red flag that the media are co of complete oblivion to. But um, how did you react to it? Let me ask. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to be completely honest. Um, my uh, issues with this paper, I got bogged down in the introduction. <laughs> <laughs> you made it past the abstract, uh, unlike me. <laughs> no, I, read I actually read it. I read it. And um, and I and I looked up a lot of his references, and I, I didn't agree with what was in the introduction. Um, and uh, and then I didn't agree with him using tired light. Uh, at all because that has been um, and and even I found I thought it was interesting that he said in the paper tired late doesn't actually work um, and so so for people who don't know what this is this is um, light every photon of light has energy and the idea is that as your photon travels through space uh, it loses its energy. Um, and this is something that can be harkened back to uh, the steady state model, the idea that the universe doesn't have a beginning. So how can we explain um, like things that we're seeing, a really high redshift? Well, the light's just getting tired, and so it's losing its energy. But that's been um, pretty resoundly disproven um, because this, this theory, well, okay, the nail in the coffin of any steady state model is that it cannot explain the, the cosmic microwave background. Um, tired light can't do it. Um, not, not, not what we see. And so, so I kind of got hung up on that. <laughs> um, uh, so I, uh, I would, and I actually, to sorry to interrupt Allison, but, but I should say learners model relies on that too. And no one since Tolman himself proposed these tests that bear his name that they use to substantiate their claims believes that there's any mechanisms whatsoever to cause light to lose energy to exactly right. compensate for the redshift behavior, nor can they actually use it to explain the um, the the patterns of the cosmic microwave background. But yes, yeah, go on. The, there are many problems with the with this tire, so-called tire light model, for, known right. for decades, if not hundreds of years by now. Right. Um, no, actually, I would love for you to point out what the red flags are with the changing constants. So um, the... Yeah, so there's well the, the first thing that there is no evidence for these changing these changing constants, and you can get anything you want if you change the constants because fundamentally, what do astronomers do? We're looking at fossils. These fossils are photons, particles of light traveling through the entire universe since they were created. And in this model, unlike Lerner's model, which is effectively a static universe, um, which doesn't change at all, which can explain even more data, in Dr. Gupta's uh, model, there is evolution and there is redshift and there is expansion. So it's a hybrid. Uh, that brings up other problems because there's a famous saying – uh, that you know, if you give me uh, five parameters, I can fit it to an elephant, and if you give me a six parameter, I can make his tail wag. 
uh, I think that was von Neumann. I'm not, I'm not sure. Someone in the chat room, please correct me. But the point being that you keep adding in these things. And it's not just one constant has to change. He goes through and says all these con multiple constants have to change. And right. what's the reference for it? A paper by Rajesh Gupta <laughs> from 2022 about globular clusters. And so just like with Lerner, when Lerner first published his paper, The Big Bang Didn't Happen in 1992 or three, that was just after the first images from the Hubble Space Telescope. Lo and behold, 30 years go by, you know, uh, and a new tool is launched. And the whole point of the new tool is to supersede what was done before. Um, so he's using, you know, it's, 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 um, it's not exactly, you know, there's no malfeasance that's being done. There's no fraudulent behavior by Dr. Gupta. But in, in the end, you have to wonder, well, when you have one constant vary, now you have to have multiple constants vary. Again, like entired light, there's no justification given. It's just saying if it does, then you can get these results. So if the speed of light slows down, then you can make it appear that the universe is younger than it is. You know, there hasn't been as much light time uh, travel. And so uh, and then if you use other tools like the size of galaxies, which I want to turn to next because you're more of an expert, you know, than I could ever aspire to be in that realm. When we when we talk about galaxy sizes and we talk about the morphology of galaxies, to me as a physicist, it seems a little bit squishy. Like where does the atmosphere of the Earth end? It's not well defined. And multiple reasonable people can have multiple opinions about that. But it seems like, you know, when you talk about a well-formed galaxy or the, the size of a galaxy, those are almost subjective. Am I wrong in that? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, well-formed. Uh, I wouldn't call these well-formed. Um, for anyone online who's got Google, just look up an image of Maisie's galaxy. Um, it's a blob. Uh, so yes, we are seeing disks earlier than we thought we would, but we are not seeing disks in the earliest galaxies. Um, and one of the things that we, like I said, there's a, there's a lot of things we just don't we just don't know in galaxy evolution. And so, so one of the things we don't know is, is disks and, and how disks form and whether they're long lived. Um, and uh, so that's really exciting, but that has nothing to do with the big bang. Right. Um, and you don't need to change cosmology to understand how disks form. Um, the size of these galaxies so I actually did a back of the envelope calculation because a lot has been made of the fact that these galaxies are really compact and um, and their masses are really high. Mm -hmm. um, so let's say that the masses that we're going to take the mass of these very early galaxies at face value. Um, I don't think we should, but let's say we are. Um, even if we take the mass at face value, the density of these galaxies is slightly less than the, the density in the Omega Centauri cluster. Um, and so, uh, Omega, so, so why is this important? Okay. The Milky Way has several globular clusters surrounding it. Globular clusters, a lot of them we think are the ripped out nuclei of, of galaxies, of other galaxies that the Milky Way has kind of eaten. Um, so Omega Centauri is a really special globular cluster because it has some of the oldest stars in it. It's, it's one of the things that you can use to constrain the age of the universe, um, because it has stars that are like 13 billion years old. So it formed very, very early on. Star formation in the very early universe, everything was dense. Everything was um, a lot more compact than it is today. So today, 
we actually can't form globular clusters. We don't form them in the local universe. Um, it's one of the big mysteries of like, well, how do you form a globular cluster? They're all old. They need to be formed in dense environments. So that's a mega sen up there um, on the screen. Uh, for any of you who are amateur astronomers, you can see it um, with, your, with your eye or with the telescope. Um, and so these early galaxies that we're finding have this density, they're that dense. Um, and, and so they're a little bit bigger than that. So that's, that's kind of surprising is how big they are, but the density itself isn't a problem. Um, we think that they should have to be that dense uh, to get the globular clusters that we, that we see. Uh, so that's not a problem. And then the angular sizes, that's not really a problem either. Mm. Um, galaxies should form small. Um, they should, I mean, again, you're a lot denser and we think that a lot of galaxies get puffed up. Well, we don't think that, I mean, we see evidence for it. We see that a lot of galaxies get puffed up, um, basically over the last 10 billion years. Um, so we've seen really compact galaxies before. We know that they're the progenitors of massive ellipticals today. Massive ellipticals today are all really puffy. They're very big. Uh, how do you get that? you get that through mergers over time. Okay, so you can form something really compact in the early universe and still get something really big today because then you've got 12 billion years to interact with other galaxies and accrete all those stars and puff up. That's right. And yeah, so this the morphology of it and then this angular momentum problem. Can you talk about that? Uh, I have some familiarity, very vague familiarity with it because of the work that I'm interested in on the cosmic microwave background as a probe of what's called primordial magnetism, or how do you get the first magnetic fields in the cosmos to kind of spool up? Um, and so maybe you can walk us through what the angular momentum problem is, and it, is it, and where does it rank on kind of your list of things that, that do keep you up at 3 a.m., unlike you know whether or not the Big Bang actually happened. But how do you get a spiral galaxy, basically, at, at high redshift? They're talking about redshift of, of 10. How do you? Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I don't know. No one knows. Yeah. Um, so I, I, if you form slowly enough, so if, you, if your protostellar cloud collapses very quickly, you're going to get an elliptical galaxy. Um, but if you collapse slower, um, then you have time, like, like protoplanetary disks, um, then you have time to actually collapse down into, into a disk. Um, because, so angular momentum has to be conserved. Um, but in general, momentum has to be conserved as well. And so you're always forming things in a 3D space. Uh, and so as the idea is as one particle collapses down um, from above, you're going to have another particle collapsing down from below. And so their Z directions are going to cancel out and you're going to wind up with an XY disc. Uh, so you're going to actually lose your three dimensionality. Mm -hmm. um, but right now, um, there's not a great explanation for it. The best explanation is basically um, things just need to happen slowly enough that you have time to dissipate that momentum um, before um, through through basically like interactions so you can settle down into a disc. Here's from Gupta's paper. Uh, he says he's talking about the tired light model and uh, and how it has uh, lacunae and flaws and so forth. He says, how are the tired light model? And this is for people. So the articles behind what's called a paywall because it hasn't been published yet. And the way these journals make money is they make 
libraries and universities subscribe to it. So I'm here at UCSD. Um, Allison, um, you may not be at your home campus in, in Kansas, but um, but uh, but nevertheless, we have access to it by virtue of the fact that you know, part instead of paying you know full wage to my graduate students and me, they pay some money to these predatory. No, these journals are fine. I've published I've published papers in monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society. Anyway, he's talking about this. So this is for you know uh, embargoed, I guess, uh, if you don't have it, but it's letting me, as you can see on the side, we did pay for it. So um, mm -hmm. this is part of uh, our mission of explaining to the consumer. Uh, no, no cost to the consumer, as Andrew Huberman says, uh, information that their tax dollars pay for. Okay, so anyway, that's my rant. However, tired light models cannot explain the extreme directional uniformity of the observed cosmic microwave background CMB radiation. There's way more in that sentence than's actually um, at, at first glance obvious, because the tired light model can't even explain the CMB uh, in terms. Of, so they're talking about the uniformity, directional uniformity, but. It can't even explain why it has a temperature that it does without any, there's no mechanism given to lose energy. So what he's going to do here is he's saying there's the tired light model has its problems. The expanding universe solves those problems, but then the expanding universe has other problems. And though, so therefore let's take the combination of tired light plus the expanding universe. That's model number one, roughly. And then he adopts, he calls that Lambda CDM plus tired light plus TL. Then he does another thing where he says, well, let's take the expanding universe and add the uh, covariant coupling constant, which means varying constants of nature, including things like Planck's constant, <laughs> uh, the gravitational force of Isaac Newton, et cetera. So here, here we go. He says, since Penzias and Wilson. So it's a little bit misleading to say, Dr. Gupta, that the uniformity is the only lacuna. It's actually the isotropic behavior of it, not just the uh, uniformity, which is the anisotropy, but the actual thermal temperature of it. There's no mechanism in tired light to do that. Uh, never, and there's also no mechanism to, to describe not just the di extreme directional uniformity, to describe its anisotropy as well. And there are many, many other tests of this called the Sanyayev-Zeldovich effect and others that he's just completely ignoring when he says that that's the, that's the one flaw. He's leading the reader to believe there's only one flaw with the tired light, and of course he's going to use it. Um, and then he says that the next, uh, the next says he goes, uh, additionally, the tired light does not fit the uh, supernova type 1A data, except at very low redshift. So now it's like the old joke, you know, the restaurant has such crappy food and they give you really small portion. You know, like how many things are we willing to kind of accept about the tired light model? And now we're going to be led to believe that although it has these big flaws, now we tack it on to the expanding universe plus a cosmic constant changing cosmic cosmological constants uh, that somehow is the solution that results in the truth revolutionizing our understanding of the cosmos and that the universe becomes twice as old so it goes however um, an expanding universe can easily account for the observed redshift of distant galaxies and the CMB isotropy that's wrong Allison the CMB expansion actually the the universe it's it's when the isotropy was discovered in this paper, uh, Penzies and Wilson, they they mentioned they couldn't see if it was isotropic. Of course, it's not perfectly isotropic, or we wouldn't be here having this conversation. Uh, but the uh, the best guess that Penzies and Wilson got was from uh, my PhD advisor's PhD advisor, David Wilkinson and Robert Dickey, uh, and 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 Jim Peebles, and that was that the universe that we observe in the Big Bang was not uh, a singular event. It was actually the result of a cyclic collapse of a pre-existing universe. So he's wrong there. 
Um, it's not, they didn't say that it was accepted because it explained the isotropy. Uh, in fact, they didn't observe the isotropy until 1992. So this is just completely factually wrong, Dr. Gupta. And I would expect that you would um, have a little bit more care when you describe such things, especially when you have such huge implications on the public's understanding of science. But let's keep going, Allison. Sorry to drone on so much. I hope you'll interrupt me if I'm, if I'm uh, boring you. Uh, but Gupta, uh, also, in these other papers, that contemplate the existence of tired light in an expanding universe. So he says right. the expanding universe has problems too. Okay, well, what are those problems uh, in the expanding universe? Because actually, the only problems that I've heard talked about are those of Eric Lerner and and uh, and Gupta and others saying that the formation of galaxies uh, seems to be inconsistent with the timescale that we thought from our computer simulations to be required to create these galaxies with their spiral structure, et cetera. So he's saying that we need, uh, we, we don't need an expand, uh, an extra parameter, but they do need to change the values of these constants as they evolve over time. And now we can dive deep because my audience is the smartest in the known universe, as you are aware. I've been clamoring to have uh, to have you on. Uh, so he goes through the math, and this is this is actually unlike Eric Lerner's claim, which yeah. is based on hearsay and the stuff that you said, you know, uh, called up and and you know and and said off the cuff. And everybody who's an astronomer knew exactly what you're talking about, by the way. And I'm sorry that you had to endure this kind of treatment that uh, came up. Did he ever contact you? <laughs> Did he ever no. apologize? Okay. No. <laughs> uh, so he's still waiting for that that uh, apology. So he, now he's got, uh, Gupta's going through the actual math of it, and he's using my favorite book, that by a past guest, uh, Barbara Ryden. I'll put a link to our, my interview with Barbara. Uh, was one of my favorite guests on the podcast and also wrote the book that I use in my cosmology class. I don't know if you use her book, but we do mm -hmm. here. Um, and then he goes through and, and derives uh, the Hubble, uh, the so-called Friedman equations. And here's the kind of money plots here. When you vary the cosmological constants, you allow for an additional term in the Hubble constant that then becomes time dependent. So the Hubble parameter uh, current time evaluation of that is the Hubble constant. And he goes through it. And I, I believe I haven't checked through the math, although he does cite Wolfram Alpha. That was a mm -hmm. little bit of a surprise to me, yeah. uh, but, but you know these are standard things that we teach our undergraduates, right? So um, I was going to say besides a yeah. press release in the introduction, I know. So yeah, I was going to mention that, but I thought let's not. Yeah, there's a Nature press release, uh, so yeah. there are a lot of red flags. Let, let's take a break here. Let's let me let me reintroduce you um, to the audience because we've got 300 plus people already. Uh, almost a thousand have tuned in to this uh, to this one uh, segment that we've done. This is uh, Professor Allison Kirkpatrick, who's a renowned observational astronomer uh, who's dealt with uh, quasars, galaxies, and was the subject of uh, some controversy uh, when it was first announced that uh, the Webb uh, telescope saw some, uh, some unusually shaped structures in the early universe that were predicated uh, on an age that was seemingly inconsistent with their divined structure. Uh, so I have my JWST here that one of my students made for me. It floats through floats through my office, and just a reminder, you know, we're not just two, uh, two yokels here. So, in my second book called "Into the Impossible," uh, which I'm not I'm not plugging, but uh, I talked to none other than John Mather. Uh, many times, I think three times on the podcast so far. But John Mather, of course, is the the PI of uh, or the principal scientist of the James Webb Space Telescope. So we had a great conversation, multiple conversations. And last year, when the data first came out, the actual images from Webb, he was on the podcast. So I'll have a link to that once this uh, podcast gets edited. But he, of course, you know, measured the uh, cosmic microwave background spectrum to be more accurate than any human made. 
spectrum of a black body ever made or ever could be made. So we're, we're the two of us are pretty well versed in this. And as I said, Allison, if they were to show something that's inconsistent, that's really exciting, isn't it? Talk to me about what it would mean. Let's say, let's assume they're let's let's steal man or steal person as we have to say nowadays. Let's steal person, their perspective, uh, Gupta and Lerner. Can you take us through that? What are some of the arguments that could sound persuasive, not just on Twitter, but to a professional such as yourself? Uh, yeah. So, okay. I guess the nail in the coffin for me would be if we were able to identify a stellar population that is older than the age of the universe. So this is one of the common tests to make sure that our cosmology is correct. Um, as we look at stellar populations and we determine how old they are. Um, and with JWST, we should have the ability to do that um, very early in the universe. And people have done that. Um, and um, and occasionally you might see pop up um, results that are like, oh, yeah, they found a stellar population that's, mm -hmm. oh, that's older than the age of the universe. But it's one of many models that fit the data and the rest of the models are consistent. And so, um, so it needs to be like the only acceptable model. Uh, and then we would really have to refine the age of the universe. Um, I think the other nail in the coffin would be, I, I know the thing that, that probably excites you as much as it excites me is like getting a dark matter detection um, finally figuring out what the dark matter particle is, um, or, you know, it might be multiple different particles, uh, figuring some of that out. Because uh, right now, to get the galaxies that we're seeing, um, again, if what we're seeing is correct, uh, you need dark matter to collapse pretty fast. And so what if we find a dark matter particle that's just not going to collapse that fast? You're not going to form structures that fast. That would also take us back to the drawing board um, and make us rethink things. And that could be pretty fun too. Um, but in general, there is no, there's no big astronomy. I don't have a vested interest <laughs> in the big bang being correct. Um, I go with what the data shows me and what evidence shows me. And so if things are wrong, they're wrong. And that's, and that's awesome. I mean, every time we get a paradigm shift in science, it's, it's great. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, nothing would be more exciting than to kind of get revealed wisdom from something that's completely new. And, and, and in fact, to that end, I actually did, uh, cheekily you know tweet to our, our friend uh, Elon Musk who said uh, let me see if I can get his tweet up here so I mean this kind of shows and belies the interest and fascination of you know some of the world's most you know important influencers as I as I would uh, think most people would claim someone like Musk is. Of course, he's a genius inventor and he's the owner of this platform that you and I met on. So he's good for that, right, Allison? I wouldn't have met you without this platform. And everyone should follow Allison at at, uh, at AK Astronomy, uh, who's great. And actually, your your name on the platform is you love the Big Bang. Allison Hart's the Big Bang because they were saying, you know, she's lost her faith at it, whatever. Uh, but here's a tweet by our friend Elon. And he's saying the evidence. So he's responding to Joe Rogan's tweet that the universe is this old and he says, possibly, uh, I love that, you know, that he's, he's opining. And then there's like literally 150,000 views or whatever. Oh, that's of my tweet. But, uh, so then he goes, um, possibly, but dark matter is what seems most sketch to me. So, uh, my kids tell me sketch means, you know, sketchy, suspicious. They call me sus. 
I don't know uh, what that means, uh, but uh, I think it's just what kids do nowadays. The kids, the youths, as they say. But uh, but I tweeted back to him. I said, look, um, dark matter is actually known to exist. It's called mm -hmm. neutrinos. Neutrinos satisfy every condition of a dark matter candidate. They aren't sufficient to close the universe, to make the universe flat. Uh, spatially flat, and they can't compensate for the amount of, of known matter in the universe. Uh, but I said, and not only you know does dark matter exist, it's uh, it's well accepted that you know that there could be either a modification to gravity or an existing dark matter, a particulate dark matter candidate. And I've talked to Mordecai Milgram, who's the father of Mond, and I've talked to Stacy McGaugh, my alma mater, Case Western. You know, we're open to these things. That's not, and they're on the outskirts. They are uh, that that is considered a sort of a fringe belief. Sabina Hassenfelder, a good friend of mine, and 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 real you know mentor in terms of things on YouTube. Uh, she and I have talked about it. There's nothing wrong with it. I think it's interesting. But to say that this discovery is kind of in the same league uh, because dark matter is so sketchy. Um, how do you react to that? Somebody says, Allison, in the media, um, you know, like, what are you talking about? You astronomers don't know 95% of the universe's energy budget. Who are you? How dare you to use Greta Thunberg language? How dare you, Allison? What should we do? What, what do you say to such a skeptic? Um, that the evidence is there. Okay, so maybe the theory isn't complete. But the evidence is there. We see evidence. Um, Vera Rubin, um, Zwicky, Fritz Zwicky, um, saw this, this very convincing evidence that there is gravity beyond what we understand. Okay, maybe Newton's theory of gravity is not correct. That's certainly a possibility. Um, the other possibility is there, there is matter that we don't know about. But regardless, we definitely know that there is extra gravity in the universe that stars can't account for. Um, and so I, I just always take it back to like, what are the things that we know? We know the universe is expanding. We know galaxies looked different in the past. We know that there are more, so I personally study supermassive black holes. Um, we know that those grow more rapidly in the distant universe than we know today. And then we go to back to Occam's razor, which is what is the simplest explanation? Well, the simplest explanation for this is that we have a finite universe that is changing. I mean, I don't know. Could we could we change our conception of the universe? Sure, but we need to see clear evidence that cannot be explained otherwise. Yes. Um, that's how we get to the point that we are today. That's how you know. That's how Einstein was able to blow apart what Newton did, um, because Newton's laws are correct on Earth. Um, but when you start looking at larger distances, you start looking at the way stars move when an eclipse, when something blocks out the sun, um, Newton's laws can't explain that. And so then you have clear and convincing evidence that you need something else and that general relativity happens to work very well. Well, you know, there are a lot of things that aren't fully explained right now. Um, certainly there are problems like how do you uh, unite quantum gravity with general relativity. That's one of the things that we don't know, but that's sure. fun. That's great. We're going to work on it and we're going to use the evidence that we have and we don't throw out evidence. Um, and we, we just try to pick the simplest explanation. And so I guess that's my, that's my problem with this paper is that the simplest explanation actually is our, um, understanding of galaxies in the universe is incorrect in the yeah. in the early universe um so because because this paper and all these results keep saying galaxies are too massive 
um, for what we understand. Um, well, that's kind, kind of. Uh, number one, those galaxy masses, I'm going to go out on a limb and say they're probably wrong. Um, they're, they're probably too high. Uh, just because, again, we have to base how we calculate galaxy masses on everything we've learned from the local universe. And that's probably not right. Um, the other thing is that the very first results, you're only seeing the most massive, the brightest stuff. And so we actually don't know what the galaxy population looks like very early on. We've seen like, we've seen the brightest stuff. This is like, if people, if an alien civilization came to Earth and they wanted to quantify what humans are like, but they only had celebrities to look at because those are the people who are on the internet the most. It's safe. There's and a so, lot of Kardashians out there, you know. That's right. So all of humanity is just like the Kardashians. Well, that's <laughs> not right. Those are the shiniest people, okay? So yeah. so right now we're just seeing the shiniest galaxies, but I'm on I'm on another program and there are multiple other programs right now trying to get down to the more normal, the average everyday galaxies. And so we just we just don't know yet what mm. what galaxies look like. Yeah, that's right. And so I think there's a lot of like assuming the conclusion that's going on in this paper in terms of uh, what a successful theory would have to do in order to f to be uh, acceptable, to be commensurate, to be compatible. And so there's a lot of wiggling in, of the constants and so forth. This is well known and there's, there's a lot of different objections to this, not the least of which once you have these parameters like, you know, the famous quote about the elephant with the six parameter wiggled tail, um, <laughs> you can also ask quite well, what, why do they have that? Is it just a pure kinematic, you know, uh, just, just a pure model where you're basically just taking derivatives and then fitting to the different parameters? Well, that, that's not as impressive as then coming up with a reason for why the those constants would change. So in other words, when Planck, sorry, when uh, Dirac was thinking about variable constants as, as you know, re as, as sort of oxymoronic as that would sound, uh, he was still thinking about those as a motivation for explaining different physical phenomena that were known to exist. And the, the relationship between these constants would explain things. So I want to take um, questions from the audience in just a bit uh, because uh, you've been so generous with your time. But I know we, we both have to go in just a few minutes. Uh, but I think, you know, appealing to, to these you know authorities like Dirac from 1937 and wanting to understand the fine structure constant, again, his motivation was to have it fit in and make it basically, uh, you know, a reciprocal of an integer and, the, and, and explain the value of its size, which we now know does change because the, plan, uh, the fine structure constant depends on scale. It's different at the quark scale than it is at the electronic scale. But, uh, but that's not the type of variation that he's talking about. And you have to ask, why is it? What is the teleology behind it? So then at the very end of the paper, I just want to give him his due. And goes through it and he has to ask, he said somewhere in the paper that it's, you know, the, the expanding universe is not consistent with other measures. Well, there's a lot of pillars on which the Big Bang stands, the CMB, expanding galaxies, and most importantly, the abundance of the nuclei, which you alluded to in the very beginning which can only be formed in an extremely hot, dense phase. You know, the famous quote by Carl Sagan that we're all stardust, um, you know, is, is not true, really. Actually, most of what we are in terms of, you know, by number density uh, is hydrogen, which came from the Big Bang, not from, uh, not from a star in population two or whatever. So um, to give him his due, he does say at the very end, very poetic, very beautiful, JWST is perhaps playing the same role HST Hubble Space Telescope did in the 90s, reinventing cosmology. I don't know if it's reinventing cosmology, but it's shedding new light, new tools. 
as my hero Galileo said, you know, you should measure what is measurable and you should make measurable, which is not yet so. Uh, but here we're saying uh, HST put the Lambda CDM model on a pedestal. JWS2 is challenging the standard. DJ, so it's almost like J HST put it up on a pedestal. Uh, JWST is coming down to knock it off the pedestal, which I disagree with. But it's beautiful language. We In this paper, we've attempted to show the extension of the Lambda CDM with deemed dynamical cosmological constant, uh, which is really a variable constant, uh, which is in in great conflict, of course, with the measurements that my colleagues have done on, on the, uh, the dark energy being a cosmological constant, in other words, having no evolutionary behavior. But we have to test that. We can't assume that that's true. So telescopes like my Simons Observatory that my colleagues and I are building, like Vera Rubin, like um, the Nancy Roman Space Telescope, these are all going to tell us new things. But he's saying at the very end, it eliminates his models, eliminate the need for stretching and tuning existing models to produce such structures in the early universe, thus amicably resolving the impossible early galaxy problem. Well, that's beautiful. Uh, that, But it seems like he's salvaging, he's doing whatever he can. Allison, to salvage the uh, the galaxy formation model, even if the the, uh, the Big Bang itself in the way that we understand it. So I find that you can react to that. Otherwise, I'd like to uh, take questions from the audience. Um, so yeah. you can always ask me questions at Dr. Brian Keating on Twitter, Instagram, threads, post, mastodon. No, I don't, I don't do any of those things, but uh, <laughs> I don't know what a mastodon does, to be honest with you. Uh, but but the point is, you can always contact me, uh, Dr. Brian Keating. I can go to my website, where if you are a, a student, um, Allison has received some of these beauties here. This is a meteorite. So if you are a student or a professor or Dr. Gupta or even Eric Lerner, if you have a .edu address, uh, you'll automatically win a meteorite by going to uh, briankeating.com slash edu, and that will get you one. If you do not have an edu, you can enter a lottery to win one of 100 meteorites. But of course, Allison, being such a, a generous, thoughtful, and uh, brilliant colleague, she's already received her batch. She even got a couple of books, um, which uh, she, was, she was telling me about. I'm very flattered that you uh, shared uh, your book with your my book with your dad. Okay, yeah. so here we go. Um, we have some questions for you. Oh, let me let me just first uh, highlight. Can you mention that you were just on our mutual friend uh, Ethan Siegel? Uh, starts with a bang. Is his handle? Can you tell us about the podcast that you were just on, Allison? Yeah. So that talked about my actual research, uh, and I research supermassive black holes. Uh, so if you look up, it starts with a bang. We go through the evidence for supermassive black holes, how we measure the mass of supermassive black holes, and um, how supermassive black hole growth changes throughout the course of the universe. Okay, great. And he has a podcast, and he's also writing for an outlet called Big Think, I believe, right? Right. Um, okay, so there's a lot of people in the audience that say uh, that things like science should not be totalitarian, and that's the main problem with the Big Bang. We sort of talked about this. This is from uh, a viewer, Quan Tin, I believe. Scientific theory should not be totalitarian, and that is the main problem with the Big Bang models. Big Bang proponents function like a single totalitarian party in power that not allow anything else. Um, I'd say that's Brian, completely I'd wrong. I'm going to say something about that. Go for it. Um, okay. 
Um, it's not totalitarian. It's just um, when you first see the mathematical expression of the Big Bang and how uni the universe changed, you're in grad school. Um, it takes it just takes a really long time to build up the physics and mathematical knowledge. And I don't know if this happens to you, Brian. Um, but as a woman throughout my past, you know, 20 years, I studied math in, in undergrad. Um, I, I kind of don't tell people that I study astronomy anymore because, because every person on an airplane or every guy in a bar has a theory to tell me. He's like, I have a theory of the universe. Okay, Just tell me study aliens. That'll stop it, Allison. Yeah. Like, no. Or the sorry. AL and aliens. Finance. You've had you've had zero physics classes. You do not have a theory of the universe that has any merit. Um, and so, it, science is in like this kind of big bang modeling, the kind of expertise it takes to write a paper like Gupta's, um, you need a PhD for. And so I can see people thinking that like science is elitist, but that's why I think public outreach is so important. Um, because I think it's important to, to disseminate results to the public and hear their questions and what they're interested in. I think that's awesome. Um, but but actually like refining models like the Big Bang takes a dedicated decades long study um, mm -hmm. of, of physics. I, I would say I actually agree with um, uh, with with whoever the Mr. and Mrs. Tin uh, that uh, that that scientific theories shouldn't be totalitarian. And guess what? They're not. There's no evidence of conspiracies. Our job is to be adversaries. As much as I like Allison, if I had the chance to review your your upcoming paper and I found a flaw in it, I would be mm -hmm. honor and duty bound, as would you, with the exact same thing. And we do this on proposals. I've I've yet to see any corrupt forced upon me. Uh, you can disagree with priorities. In fact, it's almost like the opposite. Like, there's so many good things that we would like to publish or like to fund. And to get the chance to do it, this proposal that you're working on, sadly, I believe has you know probably a 10% chance of being successful, if that. And it's gotten even harder over the decades. And I think it's causing a decline in US scientific prestige compared to Europe. Um, but we can debate that another time. Um, talk about have you have you analyzed web data? Do you have access to web data? Can we get some web data? How, how does it work? I've got a lot of web data. Uh, so I am on I'm on a couple of different teams. I'm on multiple different teams. Um, looking at one of the teams is called NG Deep, and we are running the deepest survey. So like I said before, like so far, we've only seen like the shiniest, brightest galaxies. Um, NG Deep is designed to find the most normal galaxies um, in the early universe. So, so I'm on that. Uh, we don't have clear results yet because um, we're still trying to like refine refine our measurements. Um, and then I'm on multiple proposals to study black hole growth. Um, over over cosmic time and then i'm on another like really fun proposal um to to find like the the smallest supermassive black holes in the local universe and understand what's happening with that so yeah i am i'm like drowning in jwst data, ah, data. Uh, so i'm so jealous and, and i'll i should say one more thing to mr and mrs tin or whoever ms ms tin uh miss mr tin the proposals for access to web or hubble they are double blinded in other words you can't 
I can't give Allison. I can't suppress Allison. Eric Lerner applies for a web telescope time, which he's entitled to do. Uh, Dr. Gupta applies for web. They're entitled to, you won't know it. You won't be able to say, oh, I'm going to keep him or her down, right? There's no way to do that. It's double blind. We have no idea who's reviewing us. We have no idea. And you can't even put on that, you know, my name is Allison. And, you know, most people would say, oh, I know Allison is a girl's name or a woman's name. I'm going to suppress her because I'm a misogynistic jerk. No, you can't do that because your name and even your past accomplishments, which I actually disagree with Allison. I talked with uh, Adam Reese recently yeah. who was on the podcast, uh, results of previous funding. Uh, you're not even allowed to say that because I believe people might use that to kind of divine who it is. So I can yeah. see some problems with that. But on the other hand, you would like the users of this $10 billion instrument to be among the most elite, meritocratically served individuals that can best exploit it. But to answer Tin's question, Quan Tin's question, you know, there is no suppression. Um, and it, it's almost impossible to devise it. And if you don't like it, go and support your own data's public, right? You have to make your data public, right, Allison? Yeah, that's right. Wow. Yes. Okay, great. So a couple more questions and we both got a jet, um, like a galaxy, uh, black hole at the center of our galaxy. Okay. Uh, are there any alternatives to the Big Bang? What do you think is the most promising alternative to the Big Bang model, I think is what uh, uh, Pankaj is asking us here. Do you have any of your favorites? I should say we've had on many, many guests on this podcast where we talked about this. So I can. Yeah, answer. I don't know. I would love to hear your answer to yeah. this. So uh, I just was at the Royal Institution in the UK and my talk's coming out pretty soon. It was a very, very great honor for me to give a talk at the Royal Institution. I met many of you in the audience out there. It's pretty cool. At the most uh, historic and longest running of all scientific lecture halls, Allison. It's this amazing facility in the center of London. It's in a theater in the round. It's how papers used to be presented before there were journals. Mm -hmm. So uh, so I gave a talk there. I said the title of the talk was, Was There a Big Bang? Meaning the A, uh, was there many, were there many Big Bangs? And I'm actually in the office right now with one of your heroes, I'm sure, uh, and certainly one of mine. This is a plate by Margaret Burbage. So Margaret oh, Burbage took this plate. This is galaxies. This is a spectrum. She's the one, by the way, Allison, who taught Vera Rubin how to do spectroscopy. Uh, uh, Margaret could have discovered dark matter on her own, but uh, she was generous. She let, uh, she had Rubin do it as well. But anyway, Jeff Burbage used to occupy this very office. And so he gave a t very famous talk once called, Was There a Big Bang? Meaning he believed the steady state was true and the quasi steady state. So I gave a kind of tongue in cheek version of that, said, Was there a Big Bang or were there multiple Big Bangs? Right. So there are three leading you know, contestants right now. There's something that past guests are Roger Penrose, also a chapter in this book. Um, and that uh, he has what's called the conformal cyclic cosmology, not to be confused with the triple C model of Dr. Gupta in the paper just presently discussed, but that assumes that the universe is evolving cyclically through what are called conformal transformations that involve the dissipation and conversion of energy and, and unknown particles of matter called dark matter, Erebons. Um, so that's one model. Uh, another past guest, uh, Anna Aegis and, and Paul Steinhardt and Neil Turok have a model uh, which is basically a bouncing cosmological model where there was another universe. It doesn't undergo a quantum singularity, so there's no big bang in the classic sense. It does get hot, dense, high pressure. Uh, it does happen 13.796 billion years ago, but it is not a singularity. So it's a classical theory that avoids a single, but it's a multiple big bangs that could be more than one or could be an infinite number. Uh, there are things like the steady state universe. And um, and so, you know, I think to take these models, you know, seriously or somewhat seriously, 
uh, it's important to ask, what are their falsifiable predictions? And that was the basis of my talk, because it turns out that inflation, which also doesn't have a single Big Bang. People think, oh, inflation, that's just the Big Bang. Not really, as your friend Ethan will tell you, you know, inflation is sort of the, the beginning of the hot Big Bang phase of the universe, but it's not necessarily a singularity. It doesn't necessarily you know, uh, extend to, to meaning definitive evidence for zero time singularity. Uh, but it also has um, uh, infinite behavior towards the future in that it creates what's called the multiverse, where you have multiple Big Bangs occurring with different properties throughout the multiverse. So that's another model. And the one that distinguishes them, <clears throat> the fact that the trait that distinguishes them is that the conformal cyclic and bouncing models do not predict a background of gravitational waves that induce a specific type of polarization that my colleagues and I on the Simons Observatory and BICEP are trying to detect. So stay tuned right. for that. Okay, we'll take one more uh, question here. Um, uh, the Big Bang is unfalsifiable. I disagree with that. Um, you could actually falsify both inflation and um, and also falsify the notion of um, of the Big Bang, and that has yet to have happened. So uh, I'm not going to answer ask you that question. Last question I want to ask you because you're a renowned educator as well, and you obviously take great care and thought because you use my book when you taught, no, I'm just kidding. You gave my book as a, as a present, I think, or a prize to the best yeah, student. Give class, us, so give awesome. a yeah. Okay, I wanna ask you about pedagogy and AI, and what what is your pedagogical style? How, how do you teach it? And what could artificial intelligence, is the question, will be able to solve all these entrenched theories? Could AI, is AI used in your in your work? Do you use it for any purposes? And can you envision AI or supplementing, revamping, re, what, did, what was the name of this paper again? Uh, it was Revolutionized Cosmology. Uh, let me look at right. new research. Yeah, it uh, upends. <laughs> okay, I forgot. Anyway, how do you use AI, if at all? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, we're using machine learning right now. Um, so machine learning, um, we're using like multiple neural nets and the computer is training itself on basically how to find, how to identify uh, supermassive black holes in the early universe in galaxies, uh, mainly because the data set is, is uh, so large and uh, so we're gonna need to use machine learning algorithms to do this. Uh, it used to be, you know, in my thesis work, I did all these galaxies by eye. I just like looked at them and fit models and things like that. Yeah, that's not gonna happen anymore. Um, and so, and, and so that's, that's one place where machine learning, uh, can be, can be really helpful. Um, so in the classroom, I know there's a big panic right now about, about uh, don't AI. say that. Don't say panic. Remember what happened last time? That's right. Don't say panic. Um, Could you? And people are wondering about um, about like ChatGPT, for example, which can which can write things for us. Um, first of all, I played around with ChatGPT a bit. I don't I don't find it very useful. Um, I thought you'd say it can write my proposal for me. I I you know I wish. <laughs> Look, I wish. Um, but ChatGPT is is widely misunderstood. Um, it is a predictive language text. Uh, it is not a thinking machine. And so I've I've seen people put questions in there that they want it to to like solve an answer, and that's not what it does. Um, it just analyzes stuff that's already out there and predicts like what the next thing should be. Um, I don't honestly, you know what? 
I don't really worry about it when teaching students. Um, I kind of think about it like our parents really freaked out when we stopped rote memorization um, because now we have the internet at our fingertips and the internet is a tool. And so what we need to be teaching students is how do we recognize good information on the internet from bad information? Um, how do we ask the right questions? Uh, so we're, we're starting to think about this higher order thinking. And so I think AI is the same thing. AI is not going to replace our thinking. It's going to recall, it's going to cause us to go to even higher order thinking to understand how to use AI to our best advantage. Um, hopefully automate some of those tasks that are really boring and take up a lot of our time uh, so that we can do the higher order, the higher order thinking. And so I think, you know, I think as much as AI can help us, it's a good tool. Um, as long as students aren't relying on it to give them an answer and then not thinking logically about the answer. But that's always the difficulty with teaching. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> asking, do you understand what you wrote down there? And no, a lot of times they don't. <laughs> well, Allison, you've been so generous. I'm going to wrap up. I'm going to bid you a great rest of your evening and afternoon, wherever you may be in Kansas. <laughs> and I want to thank you for being such an awesome guest. And Allison, have a great day. Thank you so much for joining us. Great. Thank you. Bye. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Thanks for listening. Keep in touch, inspired and informed by signing up for Professor Keating's Monday Magic email at briankeating.com slash list. And if you have a .edu domain, we'll send you an artifact older than the Earth, forged in the fire of an exploding star in the form of an authentic meteorite fragment. Thanks to all our viewers and listeners for helping us reach 150,000 subscribers on YouTube and putting us into the top 1% of science podcasts. Please keep it growing by subscribing and sharing with friends. We love reading your reviews and suggestions. Follow Professor Keating on Twitter at drbriankeating, that's Dr. Brian Keating, and remember to always be curious.